Who here has ever tried to assemble a piece of furniture without reading the instruction manual? Who's, who's guilty? Yeah, it's usually the guys. I don't know what that is. I, uh, I remember one time I was building this metal shelving unit with a friend of mine. His name was JR. And JR insisted as we were constructing it, no matter who asked or suggested, saying, no, no, no. I know how to build shelves. I've seen them all my life. Don't need to read the instructions. And it's amazing to me because I, look, I think back on that and I've never seen shelves built upside down before, but that's basically what the end result was. Uh, and it was so funny to me because all along the way we're looking at it, it's like, these look like shelves. This looks right. This is fine. We're going, we've got it. Our intuition's working. But at the end result of things, what we had was something that did not fit the image that was on the manual and also didn't fit the purpose that it was supposed to uh, that it was designed for. And I, I bring up this story, and I think about this story a lot because I think that I can be guilty of that sometimes. And we can all kind of get in this way at times in our relationship with God, where we tend to neglect kind of the way that he has designed it and the way that he's laid out in his word. And we try and go about our relationship with him uh, in according to our own intuitions, according to our own wit and problem solving and putting pieces together. And I think that's a real loss for us because God has so intricately and, and intimately created a relationship for him to involve him and to go according to a way that he has planned and he has created and designed. And so God doesn't want us to miss out on what he has for us when we walk in the relationship according to his way and according to the way that he has made, which is what brings us to today as we are talking about this element of our relationship with God called worship. Um, And now last Sunday, if you were here, if you were not here, uh, last Sunday we saw in John chapter 4 how Jesus explains that worship is something that is God-given and that it's not based upon us or our location or a script for us to read, but based on who our God is. It is based on the love and the glory that he has revealed to us. And so it's this very internal understanding that worship, in essence, is connected and attached to God. And a lot of times we can get that and be like, okay, that's a good essence of things, but how does it look? How am I supposed to convey worship in my life? How should I worship? And that's what we're going to be addressing today. But before we move any further, there's a few kind of guidelines that I want to lay out just so we have a clear understanding of of what we're going to be doing this morning. First of all, I am not going to be reading to you from the Caleb Pettigrew Manual of Worship. I'm not here to tell you how... I would prefer you do things according to my own way or the things that I like. Uh, I am the worship pastor, but I am not the worship police. Uh, This is not my job to kind of make eye contact to make sure everybody's moving their mouths and singing the right songs uh, and the right lyrics that are on the screen. That's not what I'm supposed to do here. As your worship pastor, I'll let you know my role is first to be worshiping God. My role here is to be engaging in my relationship with God just as each of us comes in here and ought to do the same. My second role here and what I wanted to do through this message is to be less of a worship leader or a conductor, but more of a worship encourager. I want to be able to communicate God's word and what God has to say about worship because ultimately your worship is going to be between you and him. I can lay down truths in the Bible, but the way that it comes out in your life is between you and the Lord. And I cannot try and interject and and push myself to be a mediator of that because you don't worship through me. You worship through Jesus, our Savior, who made a way for us to know God. 
So that's one thing, is we're not going to worship according to Caleb, but according to what God's word says, which leads us to the next thing, is that the pace of this morning is actually going to kind of move differently than a usual Sunday morning. If, you, if you're with us on any other Sunday, usually we camp out in one or two passages, and we like to really dive deep and read what God's word has to say in, in one or two locations, but not so here, because I want us to get a real holistic view of what God's word says. So we're going to be moving back and forth between the Old and New Testament. It's going to feel a bit more fast-paced and a bit more across the board because I want to get broad-stroke understandings of how God communicated worship throughout the whole Bible, how His people worshipped throughout the whole Bible, and even diving into some of the language and the specific words that are used for worship throughout the Scriptures. So that being said, let's go ahead and dive in. We're going to see there's three particular things that God wants us to recognize Uh, on how we worship. The first is this, is we worship by honoring God's name. We worship by honoring God's name. And we hear this a lot in the language that we use. We talk about, Lord, we glorify your name. We want to give God the glory. But what does that word glory mean? Well, in the Bible, the word that we translate as glory is this word here on the screen. It's pronounced this way. It's called chabod. Everybody say it with me. Chabod. Chabod. You got to get that like teenage angst in there of the ch. So, so everybody say it one more time. Chabon. There you go. You know a Hebrew word. You're that much more interesting at parties. Um, the word chabon, we translate to glory and we call it glory. But the actual literal translation here is weight. It is the weight of something. And in the Old Testament, it's used to describe things like uh, a man named Job, and it described that he was the wealthiest man in the land. The word chabod was talking about the weight of his wealth and all the things that he owned. It's used to describe things like plagues and natural disasters, things like sandstorms, and how abrasive and devastating it was to the people. Or it's used to describe things like famine and the severity of it, how widespread it was and how long it lasted. So the thing about this word kabod, this word glory, is that it is not something that is necessarily given. It's not something that is assigned to someone or something. It's something that's observed. If, if there's a 300-pound weight right here in front of me, I don't call it 300 pounds, and that's what makes it that way. It's 300 pounds because it is, because that's attached to that thing's characteristics. It's in that weight's nature to be 300 pounds. So when we talk about glorifying God, one of the things we need to understand is that is not us adding weight to his name. That's not us adding more substance to who he is or making him better just because we call him better. See, our worship is expressed when we acknowledge God for who he already is. Glory, the weight of glory, as scripture calls it, is something that is attached to his very nature, his very heart. Our God is glorious, therefore we glorify him. It's not saying you're glorious because I say so, but I say you're glorious because you are. It's connected to who he is. And God chooses to reveal his glory to us in very particular ways, first and foremost through his name, or more correctly, through his names. Now who here, another survey of the audience, who here knows what their name means? By show of hands, who here knows the definition of their name? Okay, yeah. It's something, I mean, it's something I do because I'm curious. I look up what my name means. Um, the name Caleb, just to let you in on who I am. The name Caleb is another Hebrew word, 
Old Testament name. It means loyal, it means bold, it means faithful, and more literally, it means dog. So that's who I am. Uh, and the last name, my last name is Pettigrew, which my sister actually looked this up as fascinating. The name Pettigrew in some areas in Europe, historically, was actually a term of endearment. It was kind of a nickname that you'd give to a kid. when you would be like, hey, little buddy, hey, little guy, you know, petty, small. Um, so my name means dog and small person, uh, which I'm six foot two and I'm more of a cat person myself. And so it's kind of a bummer. I don't live up to my own name. Um, but so God reveals his nature through his name. So we get glimpses of who he is through his names. And did you know that the Bible actually has over 900 different names and titles used to address God throughout the Old and New Testament? Over 900. I've got three. That's crazy. And the most, even more miraculous than that is that every single name, every single title is something that God lives up to. God lives up to every single name that he has. He has names like Jehovah Jireh, which says, which means the Lord is my provider. We have words like Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is my peace. Jehovah uh, Sidkenu, which means the Lord makes me holy. The Lord is my righteousness. We have El Shaddai, the Lord is my creator. Every single name is an attribute of our God. So when we talk about the weight of God's glory, he gives us something substantial and something real that we can cling on to, to know exactly who he is, to know the nature behind the name. So by honoring his name, we acknowledge every single good thing that our God is and every good thing that he has done. Jesus instructs his disciples to take God's name seriously when he teaches them how to pray. He says, pray like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That means make your name holy. The word holy means set apart. It means treated as something special. It means if something is holy, that means it is higher and above all the normal stuff here on earth. So God is saying, Lord, help me to see your name as higher, as greater. Because when I see your name as greater, that means I acknowledge that you are greater. So he's saying in our prayers, in our lives, we should be saying, God, set your name apart for me. Show me how worthy you are to be praised by the way that you reveal your glory to me. Moses said this. He said, Lord, show me your glory because he wanted to be led where God was. He wanted to be near to God's presence and he wanted a glimpse of who was leading him. And so there's so many more reasons why we should be honoring God's name in our lives. Um, So we're going to read a couple passages and kind of get a glimpse into even more of the reasons why we should be honoring God's name and why is that a part of the description of worship. The first is this, and we're going to kind of, like I said, be moving between Old and New Testament. Uh, I encourage you to write down the references of each of these passages so you can read at your own pace on your own time after this morning. Uh, But everything will be on the screen if you don't want to flip over there on your own. So we'll read first from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, verses 22 and 23. It says this, Therefore say to the Israelites, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. So we have that. Next, let's read Psalm chapter 23 verse 3 says this he refreshes my soul he guides me along the right paths for what for his name's sake 
So we see in Scripture that everything that God does, God does for the sake of his name. It's to prove these attributes of his character and to show that he is who he says he is. And even greater in our lives, God, for the sake of his name, has led us in the paths of righteousness. He has restored and refreshed our soul. He has given us salvation because of his name so that we could see who this God is. We can know him and we can enjoy this great relationship with him. Because here's, here's something very special about, about worship and, and, and what worship should be to us is um, over all things, over everything that we cover today, we get to exercise worship from a position of freedom. Because we are not here to recite lines. We're not here to follow a ritual or just follow the rules. Otherwise, it's not worship. But we get to enjoy a relationship with our God. Jesus has set us free so that we can know him for who who he truly is and have this one-on-one relationship that is so personalized to how he has created and designed each and every one of us. That's why I say I'm not going to police you because I don't have the formula for you. It's between you and God, but God has enabled us in the ways that he has made us to worship and honor his name with the relationship that he has given. And so that's where worship really begins is by in our hearts acknowledging that God is who he says he is, and he has designed us to walk in a way that honors his name also because we are called by that name. We've placed our faith in Christ. We're called Christians, and the word Christian means little Christ. It means Christ-like. Jesus says that we are now his ambassadors to the earth, so we are carrying the name of God, and so we ought to live in a way that honors the name of God and proves that he is exactly who he says he is, and he is seen as the great and mighty Lord in the way that we live our lives. That's where worship begins, in our hearts, acknowledging who our God is and taking him seriously. We don't take him lightly. But ultimately, after honoring God internally in our hearts, worship is something that is meant to be conveyed. It's meant to be expressed. And so the, f- the next point, the first way that we communicate our worship is this, is that we worship God with our words. We worship God with our words. You know, we use words like, let's praise the Lord, praise God, sing praises unto him. But what does that word praise mean? The word praise, it's another uh, Hebrew word that we're going to look at today. It's this, it's called it's pronounced halal. We say it with me, halal. Halal. There you go. Uh, the word halal, which we understand as praise, uh, it's more literally translated to boast or to shine. And uh, we can read the word boast, and that can sound very unappealing, unattractive. We don't like being around boastful or arrogant people. They're very full of themselves. But I would encourage you to think of it this way. It's not necessarily uh, boastfulness in the way that we understand it. It's more a proud parent with a toddler. Or like, oh, my two-year-old is, you know, he's walking on his two feet, he's speaking in complete sentences, he's learning how to read. Isn't he the best? And, you know, obviously, I can walk better than any two-year-old in this building, but it's a parent pointing out all the reasons that they are so proud, all the wonderful things about this child, all the reasons they delight in their child. And this idea of to shine means that I am pointing a light at this. This is now becoming the focus. This is, I am illuminating with my words how favorable this is. So when we're talking about praising God, it means that we are boasting in who our God is. We are verbally expressing every good and favorable thing that is a part of his nature. Every good and wonderful thing that he has done. The book of Psalms is full of this, these instructions to sing praises to him and to give thanks to him for all 
that he is and all that he does. And so that, that kind of raises a whole other question is we have this idea in the church of worship music and worship services, but why are we called to worship in song? And I'll tell you this, it's not just to give me something to do on Sundays. It's, it, it has a very specific purpose. The first is this, and quite frankly, uh, plainly speaking, it's because we're instructed to. Scripture says that we ought to sing praises to God. Read this in the book of Psalm, chapter 98. It starts this way. It says, Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. So we are called to sing songs of praise to God, to join in creation, acknowledging that salvation is in his hands, that he has done great things. But why just sing it? It's easier and more natural for us to speak. Why are we called to sing? Well, here's another surveying question here. Who here, by show of hands, knows the alphabet. All right. Almost 100%. I'm proud of you guys. And how were we all taught the alphabet? Did it, when you were, by singing. Yeah. We, we didn't get a lecture. This wasn't a TED talk or flashcards that we had to drill ourselves through in order to learn all 26 letters. We learned it through a song. We learned it through a rhythm and through a melody because music is a teacher. Songs teach us things. And we commit them to memory. We all in this room probably have hundreds, if not thousands, of different songs in our heads that we can recite and recall and remember the sound and the melody and the words from because it's teaching us something. It sticks in our heads. So when we come up and sing songs here in church, you may not have realized this, but you've been studying theology every Sunday morning that you've come in here by the songs that you sing. You have been learning and memorizing things about our God things about our relationship and things that he has done. And so the reason that we are told to sing is because it's a way for us to recall and to call into mind all the things that our God is, all the things that our God has done. And then we get to declare and affirm them together as his church saying, yes, we delight in this God. We believe this is who he is and we give thanks to him for this. Another thing about it is that uh, singing isn't something that happens on accident. We may feel like it's something that happens on accident, that you can be walking into Chick-fil-A and hear the instrumental music and you start singing the words to yourself because you memorize them. But that's on instinct, not on accident, because singing is something that is very purposefully committed to. It's something that is done with intention. It is something that you have to try to sing at this pace, in this tone of voice, at this, and sing these notes. It's not something that you just kind of fumble on and it turns into a song. Songs are written intentionally. And so joining together in song means that we're not going to, we can't default in our worship to God. It's something that we commit ourselves to. It's something that we do so with purpose, mindfully and thoughtfully singing praises to our God. And, and the wonderful thing about worshiping God in song is that it goes so much beyond just what a song is. I grew up in the church and we had the song called Heart of Worship. Uh, that's probably about 20 years old now. Uh, But it it, it reads this way. It says, I'll bring you more than a song because a song in itself 
is not what you have required. So you search much deeper within through the way things that appear and you're looking into my heart. See, worshiping with our words isn't just singing songs. It's so much more. It's so much more wonderful than that because it's the gospel. We are reiterating and quoting the gospel to ourselves, to God, and to one another when we sing songs of praise to our God. And so sometimes we can come into this room and we can have this mindset of like, I don't feel like worshiping. I don't feel like singing songs. I'm not in a worshipful mood. And, and we all have those days. I have those days. And I have to stand up and sing in front of everybody. And I don't feel like it sometimes. But it's so much more wonderful than the way that I'm feeling because it, wherever I stand, wherever we are in life, the gospel remains the gospel. The gospel remains true. The gospel remains transforming and transcendent and so much greater than anything that we are experiencing because our God is greater. And so when we come in and sing, I, don't, I certainly don't want anybody to come in here and feel like you have to fake your way through a Sunday morning. I don't want you to come in here and sing something that you don't believe at the time and, and, and feel like you're being hypocritical. That's certainly not what I want. That's certainly not what God wants. Because again, it's a relationship. And it's something that we have freedom to express from where we are standing, from right where God has us. And so I encourage you to sing these songs not so that we can get a bigger noise or because that's what you have to recite on the screen. We're not given a script. We're given a relationship. We're given the gospel. I encourage you to meditate on these words, sing them, pray them, however God is compelling you to, because it may be something that you need to hear, a truth about God that we need to receive and really reflect on to help us with wherever we're coming in, whether or not we're in a worshipful mood. We need to engage in the truth of God and who He is. And I'll encourage you, every person that sings on this stage, not only that, but every worship song that is sung was written by an imperfect person, an incomplete person. Oftentimes, uh, during a very difficult season and period, you know, it, it, the book of Psalms is filled with passages and verses and songs that are chock full of questions and doubts and complaints to God. But the important thing is that it's being brought to God. We worship God with our words when we converse with Him, when we connect with Him, when it's so much more than just lip service, but it is wanting to see more of who He is. And Jesus had strong words for people who were worshiping just with lip service, that they were just kind of going through the rites and recitations and liturgies, feeling like that's what worship was. And he quotes the prophet Isaiah. So we're actually going to read from Isaiah the, the, the passage that Jesus is citing when he speaks to people who do that. Chapter 29, verse 13 reads like this. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish, and the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. God is saying, I have so much more in store for you than anything that you could say or any human rule that you could try to follow. I will astound you with more of myself that puts human wisdom and intelligence to shame, that puts our limits and our parameters that we, we set for how we ought to engage it sets those aside and astounds us and restores a sense of awe to us when we come here saying, God, give me a heart of worship when these words are tough to sing, when these words are tough to say, when they're tough to believe. Show me who you are. Reveal your name to me. 
Reveal your nature to me so that I can delight in you and boast and give thanks and shine a light on every good thing that you are and everything that you've done. So ultimately, worshiping with our words is meant just to verbalize every wonderful thing we know about our God. But worship, just like relationships, doesn't stop at the words. It's not just about talk. It's about action, which leads to the third and final point here is that we worship God with our works. We worship God with our works. And I know sometimes, uh, depending on church upbringing, the word works can kind of be uh, a bit of a red flag, a red light of like, he's talking about works. What does that mean? I'll tell you this. We are not saved by our works. We are not saved by our works because we could never do anything to prove ourselves worthy of salvation, worthy of eternal life, worthy of God's love. But the wonderful thing about that is we don't have to. We don't have to lean on our works for God to be pleased because God has initiated love for us and has saved us through what he has done. And so all our actions are meant to be is a response to him. And what worshiping through our works means is that we're not trying to win God's love, but saying that who God is is worth all of me. I don't take what you have done for granted. I don't take you lightly. And I want to be more like you. So I want to imitate you in the actions of expressing love. That's what worshiping with our works means. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, Romans 12, verse 1, says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. That word for worship there is a Greek word. It is uh, called latreia. Say it with me, latreia. Latreia. Very good. It means worship. Uh, Another more literal translation for that is to render a service. It means to basically perform a divine act of serving God. And so what Paul is saying is that in light of God and his mercy and his loving kindness, we ought to be putting our whole selves in, a living sacrifice. We should offer up our lives in service and worship to our God. But why do we do that? First of all, because it's what Jesus did. You know, Jesus' life and ministry on earth wasn't just a, a lecture circuit. It wasn't just a, a rebuking session from town to town. As Jesus was traveling, he was healing the sick. He was feeding families, feeding the hungry. He was looking after children. He was visiting the houses of his friends. He was visiting the houses of perfect strangers. He was reaching out to the outcast. He was washing his disciples' feet. And ultimately, his life and ministry led him to perform the greatest act of service by offering up his life on the cross in service to us, in service to others, and in worship to God so that many more would come to know him and be saved. Paul is saying, likewise, we ought to do that. We should be more like Jesus. We're Christians. We're little Christ's. So being Christ-like means that we walk in that same heart. In view of God's mercy, we offer our whole self in service to other people to show that we don't take Jesus' sacrifice for granted. You know, worship is, is an act of showing that we value what our God has done by wanting to be more like it, by following in his example. It is the substance to everything that we say so that the church isn't just all talk, you know? We are a church that wants to act on what our God has said and imitate what our God has done, ultimately so that he is worshipped and additionally so that other people who do not know him can come to see the value of the love of our God and what it truly is to have a relationship with him. 
And that's one of the reasons I'm so thankful for, for Real Hope in this church family is because God has placed a conviction on the people in this church to not just be about talk. That we don't just come in on a Sunday and sing a song and hear a message and go to lunch. That he has allowed us to worship him through our service by local missions, by serving our communities, by loving on one another inside this body, and by enabling people across the world to work in mission of sharing the gospel to other people, by serving people, by washing feet, by looking after needs, rather than just kind of speaking well. In fact, it's in this church's DNA that three of our five family values are this. It's that we are a friend to people who are far from God. We're a friend to people who are suffering. And we're a friend to people who are different from us. And we're very particular in that language. Because we can say, Lord, you know, we love people who are far from God, suffering and different from us. But I can say, I love this person. I love somebody, you know, famous, some celebrity. But that doesn't mean that I'm a friend to them. Because I can say I love them from being far away, from never knowing them, from never engaging or investing in them. But when I'm a friend, that means I'm intentional. I'm chasing after you. I'm pursuing a relationship with you and seeking out ways to serve you and show kindness to you. And so we as God's church do that because that's what Jesus has done. He has reached out from heaven, come to earth, and displayed love for us in action, saying, I want to be friends with you. I want a relationship with you. And so we get to enjoy a relationship with God, and a part of that is imitating Him by seeking to, Im- to show that to others, by putting God's love on display and walking the way that our Savior walked. Because ultimately, Christianity isn't just about consumerism. It's not about us climbing a ladder and having things our own way. And so worshiping through service is a way that we can communicate to ourselves and remind ourselves, hey, I'm not at the center of my universe, you know? And Jesus affirms this. In the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 20, he says this, verse 25, Jesus called them together, them together is his disciples. So he called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now Jesus, the Son of God, had every right and reason and every authority to come down and say, hey, serve me. I deserve this. But he's saying, I didn't come to have it my way. I came to give myself away as a ransom for many so that people will come to know who our God is. So people could engage in a relationship with our God. And so for us, that should be our act of worship as well. Because it pleases God to see people see him for who he is. Trust him for what he says. And embrace the salvation that he has won for them. It pleases God's heart to see his family expand and for more people to realize who they are in him. And so as worshipers of God, that's part of what we get to do. We get to join in God's mission and seeing lives transformed and people drawn near to him and begin to delight in who our God is and embrace eternal life and relationship through Jesus. That's what worshiping through our works is. Is that it, this is something that should take up all of us because it has already, all of us has been given through this act of God's love. And here's another amazing thing and another just aspect of how freeing worship is, and it's not according to the Caleb Pettigrew way or to the anybody else way, 
but to the way that God has designed you. Read this with me. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, reads like this. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Moving down to verse 23, it says this. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. This is one of the reasons why worship is so incredible is because it is not a script. It is not a formula. It is not you trying to emulate me or Ryan or Jenny or anybody else who stands up on this stage, any other spiritual leader. Because God has designed you in everything that you do and everything that you say and saying that, hey, this is worship because this is a way that you can see me more for who I truly am. This is a way that in the words that you say and the actions that you commit yourself to, you can draw near to God. You can do things for the Lord. You can honor his name by living heartily in the life that he has given to you. By doing so with full fervor because our God has loved us with full fervor. He has never been half-hearted in any of the ways that he has expressed his affections towards us. And so he's saying, go and do likewise. Don't live a half-hearted life, but live a life that is devoted to serving others and putting my name on display and showing gratitude for who I am. Because when we do that, that means that we are drawing nearer to the heart of our God and we get to delight all the more in who he is and the amazing things that he has done. And it doesn't matter how menial or mundane or unfavorable these tasks may seem in our mind, God has given our lives a divine purpose of knowing him and drawing near to him. Everything that we do and everything that we encounter can point us to God. Because, because worshiping with our, our acts, with our works, isn't just doing God a favor. It's, that's not what it's about. Jesus says, if people stop praising me, the, the rocks will cry out. He says that all creation, all of nature reveals the glory of God. All of nature sings his praises by walking in the way that it was designed. Well, we as people were designed to enjoy a relationship with him. We as people were designed to know our God, to love our God, and to make him known through our lives. Because worship has a really special place in God's heart. It's something that is God-given. It's something that is intended for us to realize who our Savior is, to draw nearer to him and trust him more, to fall on him in faith and delight in him and have a joy and a hope in our life because of who our God is. Because he lives up to his name. Because his gospel is something that we can affirm today and every day of our lives into eternity. Because worship is an eternal act. In heaven, angels are singing the praises of God. And when we are brought up into the perfect presence of him, there's no longer going to be a need for expectation or faith or hope because it's all going to be right there in front of us. Our relationship with God will be perfected in his perfect presence. And so our worship for all eternity is a celebration that we are now here returned close to our God and nothing stands in between us. And God wants us to enjoy worship. It's a reason to delight because when we worship, we are get to reflect and remind ourselves of the gospel of Christ, of our Savior who has given us eternal life and has shown us what we are worth to him. Because God has looked down upon us and said, you are worth the life of my son. I delight in showing you mercy. I love you this much. I value you this much, more than you could ever do on your own. 
more than you could ever earn or deserve or prove yourself by following guidelines or someone else's way. I have shown you the way to my heart. I have made the way for you to know exactly who you are in me. And so our worship is embracing the truth of God. With our words, we say, thank you, God, I love you back. And with our actions, we show that we delight in who our God is by the way that we try and walk after his example. Because in our hearts, we treasure the name of our God, all the names of our God, because it proves all the perfections of who he is, all the ways that he has lived up to his name in the way that he communicates love for us. That's what it means to delight in God. That's what it means to worship him, is that we know who he is. We desire to know more and to seek him out with our whole hearts and proclaim his goodness with our whole lives.